0: Well, good morning, everybody. Well, it's good to see everybody today. I will open us up with a word of prayer, and then I will get into our next section of Second Peter. So, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be part of the body of Christ. Lord, you've worked in each one of our lives in a unique way, uh, in one sense, in the same way. You brought us to repentance in Jesus Christ, but Lord, our experiences are all different. The things we've done, the, the lives we've lived, and yet you chose, in the midst of it all, to reach down and to save us. And so we say thank you. And I pray for our holiness. I pray that we would be holy as you are holy. I pray that we would stand firm in the midst of the storms. And I pray, Lord, that we would be ready for your return. All around us, Lord, the world seems to be coming unglued. Just yesterday, the attack on Israel. Lord, we see things lining up with scriptures where people seem to be moving into position for the end times. Lord, we don't know when you'll come. We wouldn't hazard a guess because no one knows the hour, only the Father. But I pray that you'd help us be ready whenever that time comes. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to have everyone here. We're going to continue today, and we're going to launch into the heart of a major focus of 2 Peter. As I indicated in the last two times I taught, as we came to the end of chapter 1, in one respect, that was a little bit of a transition point. Chapter 1 really reaffirms the great truths of our salvation, of what we have. There is a call that we should be living out these truths in ever-increasing number, but it's a reminder that we have the truth we need to live life. And in fact, that the, the last few verses we were covering, the last two times I taught, Peter was really summarizing why we could have confidence in the apostolic witness. The apostolic witness is what undergirds the New Testament. It became the New Testament, all of the apostolic witness. But he was saying, look, we're not making up stories, not cleverly devised myths. We didn't fabricate all this stuff. We were there. I was there. He met with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus in his glory. Certainly they saw Moses and Elijah. But the point is, when we talk, he's saying in essence, when we talk about the future hope, something that people we will see in chapter 3 have rejected, he's saying, it's real. I saw it. We saw his glory. This is what's going to happen. And then he affirmed the reliability of the scriptures. Now, he was primarily talking about the Old Testament scriptures because the New Testament wasn't completed yet, but the process of inspiration is the same for both. The Bible is not the works of some creative author. It's not just the musings of someone's mind. I mentioned last week that most people who study the Bible aren't believers in the Bible. They think of it as another book, another work of literature. It's just like every other book. Men thought these things up, sometimes multiple men, and they wrote them down, and that's all it is. Peter says, no, that's not it at all. Those aren't myths. These are men that God moved. God moved in them by his spirit. Yes, they spoke. God used their human personalities, but God was the one who authored scripture, He says not any scripture, not any prophetic word, which is a summary of all the scriptures, not anything was just the act of the human will. It all comes from God. It's not merely inventions and stories and fables. It is God who breathed it into existence. God could have certainly spoken the Bible into existence as we have it. He could have spoken in existence like he spoke in existence of the universe. But Peter's saying this is how God worked, and we can trust it because it is the will of God. It's not made-up stories. It's true and reliable, trustworthy. And that's why in verse 4, he says these are the precious and magnificent promises That's what he's talking about. So chapter 1, over and over, is just a reminder that we have everything. God has given us everything we need to navigate this dark, sinful world, and he's given us his word, which is true and reliable, as the only light in the darkness in which we find ourselves. It's light not only for our salvation, but it's light for a lost and dying world to see. Now, it's interesting because I I do a lot of counseling, but I also do a lot of counseling myself. I talk to myself quite a bit. But I use in counseling the information in 2 Peter chapter one probably as much, if not more than anything. Why? Because Christians always think, I can't do it, I don't have enough. And the promise of God as recorded by Peter is that God through his power has given us all that we need for life and godliness and is found in his word by his spirit and his power. So over and over again I go to this book and this chapter to remind believers of the promises of God. You've already got it all. You have everything. There's nothing that you've been denied by God for the purposes of your life. But as we enter chapter 2, we get to the reason why I decided to teach second Peter. I didn't teach it because I always reference it in counseling so much and because of that great promise, although I'm glad that we got to cover that great promise. I'm teaching it because of the issues in chapter 2. I taught through 1 Peter, of course, a while back, if you've been a part of the class. I didn't pick 2 Peter because I wanted to finish the bookends. I chose to teach this book because it addresses one of the greatest dangers I see as a pastor in this day and age here in America. It addresses one of the greatest dangers that I think our elder board has responsibility for. And it's the simple issue of false teachers that rise up within the church. Now I've said over and over again I don't believe we currently have false teachers at Lakeside. If I thought we had false teachers at Lakeside, they wouldn't be teachers at Lakeside. (laughs) But as an elder board, we are mindful and we are diligent. In fact, I think some people think we're too picky and too limiting, but we take seriously the warning of the Apostle Paul to the elders at Ephesus, which is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. This was the warning Paul gave to those elders. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to drag away the disciples after them. That's the warning that the danger comes from within. People rising up in the church. I trust and pray that won't happen at Lakeside. We try diligently to make sure that we're careful about who we recognize as elders, we try to very hard to be careful of who we allow to teach in a formal capacity. We don't want wolves arising. I went to a very conservative seminary, the Master Seminary. Many of you know John MacArthur. He's quoted all the time at Lakeside. It's a wonderful place, a wonderful church. I'll never forget, there was a particular counseling class, very helpful class personally, great help to my sanctification, but also great material for the work of pastoral counseling. And I remember a pastor from an area in North San Diego County was invited up by the professor to talk to us about biblical counseling. From his perspective as somebody who is now in the pastorate, now he's pastoring a church, and he's there to explain, this is the value to me and my ministry to people. Before I left California... Not only had that pastor left the church and he'd left his wife, but he renounced the faith and was actively working against it. It happens. It happens. And so the warnings of Second Peter are so timely because it's going on. It's always gone on. It was happening in Paul's warning back then. But the things talked about in chapter 2 are happening every day. In America. I trust that it's happening elsewhere, but I don't live elsewhere. I live here. This is where it's relevant. And why is it relevant? Not because we know of anybody like that in Lakeside currently, but because I know most people at Lakeside, and I've said this over and over, most people at Lakeside, including me, are exposed to teaching outside of Lakeside through the internet, through books, through YouTube. I would guess if you get emails, at some point somebody sent you a link and said, you should listen to this oh, you need to read this article. Sometimes those are very helpful and good. I'll I'll relay it later. I'm going to send something to the whole class that Bruce Mills sent out to his class. Very helpful. But many other times I've seen those links and it's like, what in the world were they thinking? They thought this was good? This is terrible. It's happening all over the place. So that's, the danger, these false teachers arising within the church, and that's what Peter's addressing. False teaching and false teachers that are disguised as truth and teachers of truth. Now, because of the nature of Second Peter chapter 2, and I would encourage you not just to read this when I'm teaching through it, read it for yourself, but when you get into it, what you realize is that it's really a long flow of thought. What I'm going to introduce today and begin teaching on in the first three verses actually is the exact same thought throughout the chapter, and you could really break it down into three sections, which is probably what I will do. But the first verses that we're going to begin to cover really summarize the chapter, and then everything that follows elaborates and gives more information and more detail, not only to prove his point, but to show the seriousness of what's going on. But I think by and large, there's two overarching things that he's trying to do. Number one, he's trying to call out false teachers and hit head on, this is what you have to look out for. When you see this, be careful. But he's also saying, and oh, by the way, there's a judgment coming for them. Don't worry about it. When I say don't worry about it, I mean don't worry that they're getting away with anything God sees and God's going to punish In fact, what you see is references to God's historical judgment of others that's going to come in the verses that follow this. And we're going to see multiple times just in these three verses references to judgment. But really, this is where he begins to shine the spotlight and say, this is what you look out for. Be careful. These are the things that you're going to see. And when you see them, you'll know these are false teachers. So I think Peter is summarizing the entire chapter and his entire point in the first three verses, and that's what we're going to begin to study today. Again, his ultimate goal is to warn the church, to warn us, to be on the alert, to be careful, and be mindful that the charlatans, the deceivers, the wolves are out there and they're looking for you. And before you decide, I know this, I'm not in danger. And this is my own heart. In my pride at times, I think, well, it's good for other people. But I'm so sharp and I'm so smart, I won't miss something. Jesus had this warning in Matthew 24, 24 And I think about this a lot. He says, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, it's not possible but that's how good they are. And there's one other thought not in my notes, that always goes through my mind. And you've heard me say this before. And this part's in my notes. I'm going to talk about the motivator of all this, of course, is Satan. But a thought that somebody pointed out a long time ago to me, Jesus said he's the liar and the father of lies, but he was so good that a third of the holy angels who were standing in the presence of God turned away from God and followed Satan. That's good deception. That's a good liar. So don't tune out anything. Don't think, well, this is for all the gullible people. We're all potentially gullible. Satan's a master liar, and he's a master motivator, and as we know, his servants follow his lead. So, it's a critically important chapter, It's consistent with many other warnings and many other parts of the New Testament. Follow along with me. I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses. Then I'm going to outline so you'll know where we're going over the next couple of weeks. And then I'll get into the first point and I'm not going to quite finish the first point, but I'll get way into it and you'll know what we're doing. Peter says this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So as you look through this, several things jump out and you could probably outline it a gazillion different ways, but for me, since I think the goal here is to identify false teachers and the marks of false teachers, and later in the chapter, he's gonna elaborate on all these things even further, but for my outline, I just decided to make it simple, and there's four characteristics of false teachers. Can't write a book that way. That's not a catchy title, but that's what's here. Four characteristics of false teachers. And I'll go ahead and give you a preview of what they are. The first characteristic is deception. The second is immorality. The third is greed. And the fourth is damnation. So we're going to begin today and we're going to start looking at deception. And we're not going to quite get all the way through it because there's a lot here. But he begins again at verse 1, But false prophets also rose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. So he's making a correlation between what used to be and what will be and what is. He's tying in to everything we just saw. So again, if you just glance back in your Bibles at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I summarized all this briefly in my introduction, but this is critical because he's talking about Old Testament writers, the authors of Scripture. And we have their prophetic word, we have the Scriptures, and God inspired it and so in saying that, he's taking them back to that historical era of the writing of the Old Testament. And he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. In other words, as God was motivating holy men by his spirit to record scripture, at the same time that was occurring, false prophets were popping up to spread lies. Again, in this context, among the people. The people has a specific reference. It's not the generic people of the world. It's God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And so he's saying false prophets also arose among God's people amongst the Israelites, which is where the scriptures were being written. And he's making a simple connection. God used these holy men, but there were false men at the same time over and over and over in the Old Testament, we see a rebuke of false teachers. I read this verse last week, I believe, Jeremiah twenty three sixteen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. That's the definition of a false prophet. Ezekiel 13:9 says this: "So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and use lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the House of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel that you may know that I am the Lord God." Ezekiel twenty two twenty eight. her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. So Peter could have had any number of these historical contexts in mind, but he's reminding them of the reality that there have always been false prophets amongst God's people, trying to steer people away from the truth. And just like false prophets rose up then to try and lead the people of God astray, history is going to repeat itself in the church and false teachers are going to carry the mantle the false prophets used to go. But false teachers also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. This is it. This is the direct warning. This is the warning to the church. Again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I studied it. But he uses an interesting series of tenses here but basically he's saying this is going to happen and it's already happening so so this is happening now but it's going to happen in the future no doubt he's borrowing from jesus teaching some of the verses we'll see but jesus already as i told you in the one verse is warned there's fault to coming and this is where the deception really begins he says there'll also be false teachers among you and who's he writing to? He's writing to the church. And he's saying what I just alluded to, the reason I'm saying it is because Scripture says it, the danger's on the inside. They're among you. You get Jesus with saying the wheat and the tares, they're all together. He's telling us fault teachers will be among you. Here's where the deception begins to play out. They don't come into church wearing a shirt that says, I'm going to teach heresy. Can I have a job? We don't have a flyer that we could put in the front lobby and say, when you come in, if you want to teach, will you just tell us if you're a heretic and just hold it up for us? Make it easy for us. We got a lot of, you know, a lot of people, not that many elders. We could just make our job easy. Just self-identify. That's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. They disguise themselves as one of us. I've wondered many times what was going on in the mind of that pastor who was pastoring, who came and spoke to students in seminary talking about pastoral ministry and then completely walked away from the faith. He's not the only pastor that's done that, by the way. Pastors that fit within our camp of theology who have done that exact same thing. At the beginning and at the end, they were disguised. They weren't real. But these false teachers that are among you, they got among you by claiming to be you. And they're following the lies and practices of their true father, which is Satan. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. Wasn't that long ago, I went over my summer camp teaching, which was on Satan and his schemes. And I reference this verse, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose ends will be according to their deeds. In fewer words, Peter is describing that exact same thing. That's how they're among you. They disguise themselves. They blend in. They look like we do. Jude, in the short letter, it's just one chapter, but Jude says something descriptive of how they get among you. In fact, there are many parallels between 2 Peter and Jude and their warning against false teachers. But Jude says this in verse four. It's a verse that I'll probably come back to at different times. Parts of that book I'll reference many times through the teaching of chapter two. But he says this in verse four, Jude does. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They snuck in. They weren't making noise. They weren't identifying Yesterday was football day. You watch fans and some fans are de- head to toe. They want to get on TV. You know them because they're covered. There's at every Florida State game there's two crazies that I might have been them years ago if I had the tools. But they cover themselves completely in garnet and the other one's gold. That's Florida State colors. They're head to toe and they're always on TV. They didn't creep in unnoticed. <laughs> they wanted everybody to see them. That's not what happens with false teachers. Again, they're not advertising. They're slipping in. They're playing a long game. They claim to be true teachers. They claim to be true Christians. And if they're not outright lying, they're deceiving themselves because they're not. They're deceitful. Deception is part and parcel. Again, if they just put on a sign that said, I'm here to steal your sheep, it wouldn't be an issue. But that's not what they do. But how they got on the inside is just a part of their deception. It goes on, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That's where we're camping the rest of this time. This really shows the dangers and the subtleties of false teachers. And I can assure you, and I'm going to Name a few names and talk about some specific examples. This is playing out real time every week around us. He says they'll secretly introduce. Again, it's deceiving, it's deception. It's not calling attention and fanfare. Secretly has the idea of covertly or stealthily, quietly. One commentator I thought had a good summary, smuggling it in. What's a smuggler to do? They're disguising everything. Debbie and I were just watching a documentary. It was on Netflix about cocaine smugglers from the 80s. guess what? They're, They're hiding it. They're sneaking it in. It looks innocent. Oh, look, a can of coffee. No, it's a kilo of Coke. They're secretly doing this. They're smuggling in and they're bringing them into the church. They introduce it. And as I read, and I think it bears out, it's often in the idea of something new. A little bit of additional information that you didn't see in the text. Perhaps it doesn't mean what you thought it meant. They don't necessarily announce that they're abandoning the Scripture. Rather, they hold up the Scriptures and say, well, we've got to explain to you what it really means. You missed it. I read this week, somebody saying the church, yeah, 2,000 years the church believed it. Thank goodness we corrected it now. Before we found out after 2,000 years it was all wrong. That's the secretiveness. It's deceptive. And they slip it in amongst a lot of other words so that maybe you won't flag it. Maybe you won't notice it. And if they can slip it in, then slip it in Again slip it in again and by after a while you're kind of used to it and it doesn't even catch your attention anymore and they've secretly introduced it and it's not innocent. He calls them destructive heresies. We understand in general what a heretic is. It's somebody who deviates from the orthodox faith. They deviate from the truth. He says these are destructive heresies. He's going to be talking later about the judgment On the church, but he's also going to be talking about the impact on the church. He talks about the the word of God, the the way being impugned and scandalized. If these false teachers can get people to follow their destructive heresies, not only can they lead some people to eternal damnation because they take them away from the gospel. If by chance a genuine believer falls into some of these lies, he can destroy their testimony and witness. And at the end, it's all about destruction. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. Peter said, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those he can build up to feel better. No, to devour. It's exactly what these destructive heresies do. It really goes back to the garden. Did God really say? <laughs> That's what the false teachers are doing now. Did did God really say that? Oh, no, 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 no. no. You didn't understand. He didn't really say that. You surely will not die. And sadly, because of the church de-emphasizing the need for the truth and the preoccupation with attracting crowds and the preoccupation with meeting a budget... Far too many churches are not teaching what the Word of God says, they're teaching what people want to hear. And false teachers have ample room to run with it. Such that false teachers are not only able to slip in, but since the goal of the church is to make people happy, the false teachers are often welcomed with open arms. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves, teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You see, the picture being painted is that the people that should be desiring the truth ultimately just want to hear what they want to hear. And again, I can't, you know, when I first was saved and I looked at Scripture, I would say, wow, that looks like that's happening now I know a lot more and the same thing that I understood was a new belief wow this is happening I don't see it because I'm a pastor I see it because I have eyes in the broader evangelical church this is happening every day and I'm not talking about the liberal denominations that quit believing the Bible a century ago they're all dead and dying anyway and that's not a cause for rejoicing that's a sad reality because some of them originally had a foundation of preaching the gospel and they don't anymore But these are people that say I believe the Bible and yet heretics and false teachers are rising up within those churches. They're among you and they're spreading destructive heresies. And what's sad is over time the false teachers who started out secretly introducing destructive heresies become mainstream. And what used to have to be whispered in the dark is now proclaimed in the light and people claiming to be Christians can't tell the difference because they don't know the scriptures and they're not taught. I debated on where to go down this road, but I'm really going to base some of what I'm making a point of based on something Bruce Mills sent out. Bruce had recently identified something. He saw something that caught his eye in a couple of articles and he wrote up a little summary for a Sunday school class and he sent it to them and then he sent it to the elders. He said, you know, I I just sent this to my class. I thought you might want to see it. And so I looked at what he was saying and I had heard some of it before and it reminded me of some things. But over time, there are a lot of well-known heretics in America. Now some of them I've mentioned their teachings in various ways, but it's easy to point somebody I read described it as the low-hanging fruit of people from the word faith. The name it and claim it, they're all getting rich. It all started with a man, well, (laughs) never mind. It all starts with Satan, (laughs) but the most popularized form that's circulating now can be traced back through an original Ken Hagen who has a son, Ken Hagen, which spread to Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar. Joyce Myers fits into that camp. Believe it or not, Joel Osteen fits in that camp. He just disguises it better than anybody else what he's saying. And yes, I could point out heresies of all of them. And I've had arguments at people at Lakeside who tried to convince me that it was okay to listen to some of these people. But when you get closer along and you get into other circles outside of the word faith, if you're not from a Pentecostal background, you go, wait a minute, that's not our world. Those people aren't invited to speak with John MacArthur. That's a different planet. It's not happening in our camp but it is. Now, we wouldn't identify him as our camp, but a beloved pastor of America that most of you know was Charles Stanley. Preached out of Atlanta forever. And he had a huge following. He wasn't the deepest of teachers. He didn't dive deep. But in general... He did preach the gospel. He did things I didn't agree with. I didn't like his approach to ministry after he went through a divorce. But those things aside, I know he was a beloved grandfatherly pastor that everybody saw on TV. And I know as a new believer, he said some things that were encouraging to me when I was trying to find my way. He's folksy. He was very Baptist. And I believe he's in heaven now. That's not who I'm talking about. But everybody knows Charles Stanley. He's famous. Everybody was touched in some way by a video or show. We had a son, and many of you all know his name, who followed in his footsteps, became a pastor, Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is a pastor of a church, I think somewhere around the Atlanta area. I think it's called North Point. I didn't write that part down. And this is what Bruce's email was about. And I'm going to send it to all of you so you can see it yourself. I found other articles beyond what Bruce sent. But Andy Stanley, and I've known this, but since we're talking about false teachers who secretly introduce destructive heresies, I figured why not give you an example of somebody that fits exactly what's being talked about and that's Andy Stanley. His church is huge. The numbers I saw, and you can do Google a number and I think for every Baptist church you divide by two, but the numbers they say 38,000 people and that was a knock against Baptists. I'm sorry, forgive me for that. I say that because there's more of an infatuation with numbers in most Baptist churches because they keep track of baptisms and Sunday school attention and all that, and I'm making fun of their record keeping. But Andy Stanley pastors a megachurch, over 30,000 people, over eight locations. He's a best-selling author. Countless people are watching his videos and things. And he's the son of Charles Stanley. If you can trust Charles Stanley, of course. You can trust Andy. They look similar. In fact, there was even a heroic point way, way back, if you remember when Charles Stanley was wife left him as going through a divorce, where his son, Andy, actually rebuked him from a biblical standpoint for something. Those days seem to be long gone. Bruce sent out the articles but I'm going to use the illustration here. Recently, their church held a conference. And the premise of the conference was this. We want to help parents who have children who've identified as LGBTQ and whatever other letters go with it. In and of itself, we want to help Christian parents who've had children who come out and say, I'm gay. I'm transgender, whatever. On its face, that doesn't sound cruel or wrong. But certainly it matters what you say to those parents. And it was hosted by Andy Stanley's church and people got wind of it because the two main speakers happened to be gay men who were married to other men. So as you might imagine, perhaps those Parents aren't going to hear the message of the Bible, which is that homosexual behavior is sinful. It's wrong. People need to repent. They invited in people who are living in open rebellion to God to lead all of their discussions. What's interesting, several big names, including Al Mohler, pointed it out. In fact, Bruce links to an Al Mohler article. Again, I'm going to have the email forwarded to you this week. And so Andy Stanley got wind of that and he gave an entire Sunday message defending what he was doing. He's basically doubling down and saying, absolutely, we'll do it. Now what's interesting is he consistently says, we believe in a biblical ethic, that marriage is only between one man and one woman. We believe what the Bible says about those things. But rather than hold that ethic and call people to repentance, he justifies their sin and explains it away. So on the one hand, he says, we believe what you believe. On the other hand, and I'll summarize, I'll quote from Al Mohler's article, and Al Mohler quotes, and I'll try and identify it, Andy Stanley from that message that was there. He said, and yet Stanley turned to offer what amounts to a justification for allowing same-sex couples to be part of the church. He spoke of same-sex attractive believers who practice sexual celibacy, but then said, and this is the quote from Andy Stanley, but for many, and again, he's talking about people who have same-sex attraction, homosexual desires. He says, quote, but for many, that is not sustainable. So they choose same-sex marriage. Not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They choose to marry for the same reason many of us do, love, companionship, and family. And his ultimate takeaway is they're welcome in his church. They're not going to call them to do anything. I actually read an article by one of the people that they promote, and Andy Stanley speaks at their conference. Again, these are two parents who had an epiphany. They used to believe what the Bible said, but then they had a son who came out as gay, and then they decided that the Bible didn't really mean what they thought it meant. And now they're famous. They speak everywhere, And their idea was when we figured all this out, we realized it wasn't our son who needed to change, it was us who needed to change. That's what's happening. On the one hand, Andy Stanley says, absolutely, we believe the Bible. On the other hand, he absolutely disregards the Bible. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. He said, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, meaning if he refuses to repent and turn away from his sin, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector. So Jesus says, when you see sin, you call it out privately. But if there's no repentance, eventually it's publicly. You got to let the church know. Andy Stanley says otherwise welcome them, bring them in, fellowship with them, let them make their choices. Look, they've decided that obedience to God's command is not sustainable. Welcome them. They're here. In fact, we'll let some of them come and teach you. We'll teach you how to be comfortable with your child's sin. We'll teach you how to make sure that your child is comfortable in their sin. Jesus loves you. We'll see you next Sunday. He has secretly introduced destructive heresies that are going to damage people. Again, I'm not picking on homosexuality. This just happens to be the issue that is at the forefront that's devastating much of evangelical Christianity. I've talked in the past about how I think divorce has done the same thing in a heterosexual realm, sexual immorality amongst Heterosexuals has damaged the testimony of the church. But in this case, homosexual behavior is described by God in a certain way. Heresy about homosexuality is destructive. Unrepentant sin did not find God's approval, period. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 has a strong warning. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The hope of the gospel is in the next verse. Such were some of you. You can repent and you can turn away from it. But if a church is telling you, no, 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 you got to learn to love yourself. It's okay. Maybe it's not sustainable from turning away from the alcohol. Well, maybe not as sustainable to be monogamous. Go ahead and be an adulterer. Maybe it's not sustainable to work for a living. Go ahead and steal. God's word says they will not inherit the kingdom of God if they don't repent. Andy Stanley says otherwise. Come on in. It's okay. It's happening in churches all across America. It's not just this issue, but this is the issue of the day and it's devastating to the health of the church. There are entire organizations that call themselves evangelical, that call themselves Christians, that are led by Christians, that are designed to help Christians change their views so they can reject the clear teaching of the Bible on the issue of homosexuality. It happens with homosexuality. It happens with divorce. It happens with the role of men and women in the church. It happens with the office of pastor. It happens with embracing the world and its opinions on evolution and how we came about. On and on it goes. And they secretly are introduced, and over time they become the mainstream. And they destroy everybody who embraces them. It's deceptive, and it's enticing, and it's deadly. So we're going to continue on next time. I couldn't even get through one verse because I got wound up. I'll send you that information so you can review for yourself what's said about Andy Stanley. There's references to many other views of his that are wrong, including him basically saying we shouldn't look to the Old Testament for anything about our life because the Old Testament is over there. There's something called the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. though. So if you reject the Old Testament, you've got some problems. And Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, but the scriptures say all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction and training in righteousness. So if a teacher says you can disregard the Old Testament, uh uh-oh. But again, it's happening all around us. If I tried to name everybody, it'd be Whack-A-Mole because every week there'd be another name to add to the list. But for us, we need to be on the alert and we need to be careful because they're deceptive and they're coming for us. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I am inadequate for the task I know of preparing people to resist error. But Lord, you've called me to be a pastor and and I can only sound the alarm where scripture sounds the alarm. I pray for every brother and sister hearing my voice, Lord. Lord, We've been in the church for very long. We've all seen examples of this. We've heard examples of this. And Lord, I pray that Andy Stanley would repent and that Joyce Myers and Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagan, and I'd pray that every false teacher would repent, Lord, that they would turn away from lies and embrace the truth. But Lord, for us, give us wisdom. Satan is a good deceiver. He's a good liar. We are all at risk if we're not careful of being led astray by somebody who's compelling, and dynamic, and they can make a good argument. Lord, help us be grounded in the truth such that that type of deception doesn't take a hold in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look forward to continuing this next week. I'll see you then.